support Black Clock Audio Tales by going to the Patreon link in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. This month, the month of May, we are doing uh, the space operas Skylark of Space and Skylark 3 by E.E. Smith. Thank you again for listening. And for Radio Free Oleander, we'll be talking about Star Wars, or the Star Wars trilogy, or the Star Wars series, or Star Wars as a phenomena this May. Check out our show notes for where to find us, where to subscribe, where to find out, where to find us on social media, where to suggest stuff, where to say, hey, I was listening to Dracula, and there's a page missing that happened, and I fixed it. Black Clock Audio Tales, the month of May. Recording by Richard Kilmer. Now Boone unmasked. After a long sound sleep, Seaton awoke and sprang out of bed. No sooner had he started to shave, however, than one of the slaves touched his arm, motioning him into a reclining chair and showing him a keen blade, long and slightly curved. Seaton lay down, and the slave shaved him with a rapidity and smoothness he had never before experienced, so wonderfully sharp was the peculiar razor. After Seaton had dressed, the barber started to shave the chief slave without any preliminary treatment, save rubbing his face with a perfumed oil. "'Hold on a minute,' interjected Seaton, who was watching the process with interest. "'Here's something that helps a lot.' He lathered the face with his brush, and the man looked up in surprised pleasure as his stiff beard was swept away without a sound. Seaton called to the others, and soon the party was assembled in his room, all dressed very lightly because of the unrelieved and unvarying heat, which was constant at one hundred degrees. A gong sounded, and one of the slaves opened the door, ushering in a party of servants bearing a table ready set. During the meal, Seaton was greatly surprised at hearing Dorothy carrying on a halting conversation with one of the women standing behind her. "'I knew that you were a language shark, Dottie, with five or six different ones to your credit, but I didn't suppose you could learn to talk this stuff in one day.' "'I can't,' she replied, "'but I've picked up a few words of it. I can understand very little of what they are trying to tell me.' The woman spoke rapidly to the man standing behind Seaton, and as soon as the table had been carried away, he asked permission to speak to Dorothy. Fairly running across to her, he made a slight obeisance, and, in eager tones, poured forth such a stream of language that she held up her hand to silence him. "'Go slower, please,' she said, and added a couple of words in his own tongue. There ensued a strange dialogue, with many repetitions and much use of signs. She turned to Seaton with a puzzled look. I can't make out all he says, Dick, but he wants you to take him into another room of the palace here to get back something or other that they took from him when they captured him. He can't go alone. I think he says he will be killed if he goes anywhere without you. And he says 
that when you get there, you must be sure not to let the guards come inside. All right, let's go. And Seaton motioned the man to precede him. As Seaton started for the door, Dorothy fell into step beside him. Better stay back, Dotty. I'll be back in a minute, he said at the door. I will not stay back. Wherever you go, I go, she replied in a voice inaudible to the others. I simply will not stay away from you a single minute that I don't have to. All right, little girl, he replied in the same tone. I don't want to be away from you either, and I don't think that we are in any danger here. Preceded by the chief slave and followed by half a dozen others, they went out into the hall. No opposition was made to their progress, but a full half-company of armed guards fell in around them as an escort, regarding Seaton with looks composed of equal parts of reverence and fear. The slave led the way rapidly to a room in a distant wing of the palace and opened the door. As Seaton stepped in, he saw that it was evidently an audience chamber or courtroom, and that it was now entirely empty. As the guard approached the door, Seaton waved them back. All retreated across the hall, except the officer in charge, who refused to move. Seaton, the personification of offended dignity, first stared at the offender, who returned the stare, and stepped up to him insolently, then pushed him back roughly, forgetting that his strength, great upon earth, would be gigantic upon this smaller world. The officer spun across the corridor, knocking down three of his men in his flight. Picking himself up, he drew his sword and rushed, while his men fled in panic to the extreme end of the corridor. Seaton did not wait for him, but in one bound leaped halfway across the intervening space to meet him. With the vastly superior agility of his earthly muscles, he dodged the falling broadsword and drove his left fist full against the fellow's chin with all the force of his mighty arm and all the momentum of his rapidly moving body behind the blow. The crack of breaking bones was distinctly audible as the officer's head snapped back. The force of the blow lifted him high into the air, and after turning a complete somersault, he brought up with a crash against the opposite wall, dropping to the floor, stone dead. As several of his men, braver than the others, lifted their peculiar rifles, Seaton drew and fired in one incredibly swift motion, the explosive bullet obliterating the entire group of men and demolishing that end of the palace. In the meantime, the slave had taken several pieces of apparatus from a cabinet in the room and had placed them in his belt, stopping only to observe for a few moments a small instrument which he clamped upon the head of the dead man. He rapidly led the way back to the room they had left and set to work upon the instrument he had constructed while the others had been asleep. He connected it in an intricate system of wiring with the pieces of apparatus he had just recovered. "'That's a complex job of wiring,' said Duquesne admiringly. "'I've seen several intricate pieces of apparatus myself, but he has so many circuits there that I'm lost. It would take an hour to figure out the lines and connections alone.' Straightening abruptly, the slave clamped several electrodes upon his temples and motioned to Seaton and the others, 
speaking to Dorothy as he did so. "'He wants us to let him put those things on our heads,' she translated. "'Shall we let him, Dick?' "'Yes,' he replied without hesitation. "'I've got a real hunch that he's our friend, and I'm not sure of now Boone. He doesn't act right.' "'I think so, too,' agreed the girl, and Crane added, "'I can't say that I relish the idea, but since I know that you are a good poker player, Dick, I'm willing to follow your hunch. How about you, Duquesne?' "'Not I,' declared that worthy, emphatically. "'Nobody wires me up to anything I can't understand, "'and that machine is too deep for me.' Margaret elected to follow Crane's example, and impressed by the need for haste, evident in the slave's bearing, the four walked up to the machine without further talk. The electrodes were clamped into place quickly, and the slave pressed a lever. Instantly, the four visitors felt that they had a complete understanding of the language and customs of both Mardonale, the nation in which they now were, and of Condal, to which nation the slaves belonged, the only two civilized nations upon Osnome. While the look of amazement at this method of receiving instruction was still upon their faces, the slave, or rather, as they now knew him, Dunark, the Colfidix, or Crown Prince, of the great nation of Condal, began to disconnect the wires. He cut out the wires leading to the two girls and to Crane, and was reaching for Seaton's when there was a blinding flash, a crackling sound, the heavy smoke of burning metal and insulation, and both Dunark and Seaton fell to the floor. Before Crane could reach them, however, they were upon their feet, and the stranger said in his own tongue, now understood by everyone but Duquesne. This machine is a mechanical educator, a thing entirely new, in our world at least, although I have been working on it for a long time. It is still in a very crude form. I did not like to use it in its present state of development, but it was necessary in order to warn you of what now Boom is going to do to you and to convince you that the best way of saving your lives would save our lives as well. The machine worked perfectly until something, I don't know what, went wrong. Instead of stopping, as it should have done, at teaching your party to speak our languages, it short-circuited us too completely, so that every convolution in each of our brains has been imprinted upon the brain of the other. It was the sudden formation of all the new convolutions that rendered us unconscious. I can only apologize for the breakdown, and assure you that my intentions were of the best. You needn't apologize, returned Seaton. That was a wonderful performance, and we're both gainers, anyway, aren't we? It has taken us all our lives to learn what little we know, and now we each have the benefit of two lifetimes spent upon different worlds. I must admit, though, that I have a whole lot of knowledge that I don't know how to use." "'I'm glad you take it that way,' returned the other warmly, "'for I am infinitely the better off for the exchange. "'The knowledge I imparted was nothing compared to that which I received. "'But time presses. "'I must tell you our situation. "'I am, as you now know, the Kofidix of Condol. "'The other thirteen are Phaedo and Phaedrio, "'or, as you would say, princes and princesses of the same nation. 
We were captured by one of Nell Boone's raiding parties while upon a hunting trip, being overcome by some new stupefying gas, so that we could not kill ourselves. As you know, Condol and Mardonale have been at war for over 10,000 Carcamo, something more than 6,000 years of your time. The war between us is one of utter extermination. Captives are never exchanged, and only once during an ordinary lifetime does one ever escape. Our attendants were killed immediately. We were being taken to furnish sport for Nalboon's party by being fed to one of his captive colono, animals something like your earthly devilfish. When the escort of battleships was overcome by those four Carlono, the animals you saw, and one of them seized Nalboon's plane, in which we were prisoners. You killed the Carlon, saving our lives, as well as those of Nalboon and his party. Having saved his life, you and your party should be honored guests of the most honored kind, and I venture to say that you would be so regarded in any other nation of the universe. But Nalboon, the Damak, a title equivalent to your word Emperor, and our word, Carfedix, of Mardanale, is utterly without honor or conscience, as are all Mardanaleans. At first he was afraid of you, as we all were. We thought you visitors from a planet of our fifteenth sun, which is now at its nearest possible approach to us. After your display of superhuman power and ability, we expected instant annihilation. However, after seeing the Skylark as a machine, discovering that you are short of power, and finding that you are gentle instead of bloodthirsty by nature, now Boone lost his fear of you, and resolved to rob you of your vessel and its wonderful secrets of power. Though we are so ignorant of chemistry that I cannot understand the thousandth part of what I just learned from you, we are a race of mechanics, and have developed machines of many kinds to a high state of efficiency, including electrical machines of all kinds. In fact, electricity generated by our great waterfalls is our only power. No scientist upon Osnome has ever had an inkling that intra-atomic energy exists. Nalboon cannot understand the power, but he solved the means of liberating it at a glance, and that glance sealed your death warrants. With the Skylark, he could conquer Condol, and to assure the downfall of my nation, he would do anything. Also, he or any other Osmonian scientist would go to any lengths whatever, would challenge the great first clause itself to secure even one of those little bottles of the chemical you call salt. It is far and away the scarcest and most precious substance in the world. It is so rare that those bottles you produced at the table held more than the total amount previously known to exist upon Osnome. We have great abundance of all the heavy metals, but the lighter metals are rare. Sodium and chlorine are the rarest of all known elements. Its immense value is due not to its rarity, but to the fact that it is an indispensable component of the controlling instruments of our wireless power stations, and that it is used as a catalyst in the manufacture of our hardest metals. For these reasons, you understand why Nalboon does not intend to let you escape, and why he intends that this Kokum, 
our equivalent of a day, shall be your last. About the second or third calm hour of the sleeping period, he intends to break into the Skylark, learn its control, and secure the salt you undoubtedly have in the vessel. Then my party and myself will be thrown to the colon. You and your party will be killed and your bodies smelted to recover the salt that is in them. This is the warning I had to give you. Its urgency explains the use of my untried mechanical educator. The hope that my party could escape with yours in your vessel explains why you saw me, the Kofidex of Condal, prostrate myself before that arch-fiend, Nalboon. How do you, a captive prince of another nation, know these things? asked Crane doubtfully. I read Nalboon's ideas from the brain of that officer whom the Carfidex Seton killed. He was a Ladex of the guards, an officer of about the same rank as one of your colonels. He was high in Nalboon's favor, and he was to have been in charge of the work of breaking into the Skylark and killing us all. Let me caution you now. Do not let any Mardanalian touch our hands with a wire, for if you do, your thoughts will be recorded, and the secrets of the Skylark and your many other mysterious things, such as smoking, matches, and magical feats, will be secrets no longer. Thanks for the information, responded Seaton, but I want to correct your title for me. I am no Carfidex, merely a plain citizen. In one way, I can see that that is true, replied the Kofidex, with a puzzled look. I cannot understand your government at all, but the inventor of the Skylark must certainly rank as Carfidex. As he spoke, a smile of understanding passed over his face, and he continued, I see. Your title is Doctor of Philosophy, which must mean that you are the Carfidex of knowledge of the earth. No, no, you're way off. I'm... Certainly, Seaton is Carfidex of knowledge, broke in Duquesne. Let it go at that, anyway, whatever it means. The thing to do now is to figure a way out of this. You chirped it then, Blackie. Dunark, you know this country better than we do. What do you suggest? I suggest that you take my party into the Skylark and escape from Mardanale as soon as possible. I can pilot you to Condalek, the capital city of our nation. There, I can assure you, you will be welcomed as you deserve. My father, the Carfidex, will treat you as a Carfidex should be treated. As far as I am concerned, nothing I can ever do will lighten the burden of my indebtedness to you. But I promise you all the copper you want, and anything else you may desire that is within the power of man to give you. Seaton thought deeply a moment, then shook Dunark's hand vigorously. That suits me, Kofidex, he said warmly. I thought from the first that you were our friend. Shall we make for the Skylark right now, or wait a while? We'd better wait until after the second meal, the prince replied. We have no armor and no way of making any. We would be helpless against the bullets of any except a group small enough so that you could kill them all before they could fire. The calm after the second meal is devoted to strolling about the grounds, so that our visiting the Skylark would look perfectly natural. As the guard is very lax at that time, it is the best time for the attempt. 
But how about my killing his company of guards and blowing up one wing of his palace? Won't he have something to say about that? I don't know, replied the Kofedex doubtfully. It depends upon whether his fear of you or his anger is the greater. He should pay his call of state here in your apartment in a short time, as it is the inviolable rule of Osnome that any visitor shall receive a call of state from one of his own rank before leaving his apartment for the first time. His actions may give you some idea as to his feelings, though he is an accomplished diplomat and may conceal his real feelings entirely. But let me caution you, do not be modest or soft-spoken. He will mistake softness for fear. All right, grinned Seaton. In that case, I won't try to find out what he thinks. If he shows any sign of hostility at all, I'll open up on him. Well, remarked Crane calmly, if we have some time to spare, we may as well wait comfortably instead of standing in the middle of the room. I, for one, have a lot of questions to ask about this new world. Acting upon this suggestion, the party seated themselves upon comfortable divans, and Dunark rapidly dismantled the machine he had constructed. The captives remained standing always behind the visitors until Seaton remonstrated. Please sit down, everybody. There's no need of keeping up this farce of you being slaves as long as we're alone. Is there, Dunark? No, but at the first sound of the gong announcing a visitor, we must be in our places. Now that we are all comfortable in waiting, I will introduce my party to you. Fellow Condoleans, greet the Carfido Seton and Crane, he began, his tongue fumbling over the strange names of a distant world, the earth, and two noble ladies, Miss Veneman and Miss Spencer, soon to be their cafadero. Guests from Earth, allow me to present to you the Cofadir Sitar, the only one of my wives who accompanied me upon our ill-fated hunting expedition. Then, still ignoring Duquesne as a captive, he introduced the other Condoleans, in turn, as his brothers, sisters, cousins, nieces and nephews, all member of the great ruling house of Condal. Now, he concluded, after I have a word with you in private, Dr. Seaton, I will be glad to give the others all the information in my power. He led Seaton out of earshot of the others and said in a low voice, It is no part of Nalboon's plan to kill the two women. They are so beautiful and so different from our Osnomian women that he intends to keep them alive. Understand? Yes, returned Seaton grimly, his eyes turning hard. I get you all right. But what he'll do, and what he thinks he'll do, are two entirely different breeds of cats. Returning to the others, they found Dorothy and Sitar deep in conversation. So a man has half a dozen or so wives, Dorothy was asking in surprise. How do you get along together? I'd fight like a wildcat if my husband tried to have other wives. We get along splendidly, of course, returned the Osnomian princess in equal surprise. I would not think of being a man's only wife. I wouldn't consider marrying a man who could win only one wife. Think what a disgrace it would be. And think how lonely one would be while her husband is away at war. We would go insane if we did not have the company of the other wives. There are six of us, and we could not get along at all without each other. I've got a compliment for you and Peggy, Dottie, said Seaton. 
Dunark here thinks that you two girls look good enough to eat, or words to that effect. Both girls flushed slightly, the purplish-black color suffusing their faces. They glanced at each other, and Dorothy voiced the thought of both as she said, "'How can you, Kofedex Dunark? In this horrible light, we both look perfectly dreadful. These other girls would be beautiful, if we were used to the colors, but we two look simply hideous.' "'Oh, no,' interrupted Sitar. "'You have a wonderfully rich coloring. "'It is a shame to hide so much of yourselves with robes.' "'Their eyes interpret color differently than ours do,' explained Seaton. "'What to us are harsh and discordant colors "'are light and pleasing to their eyes. "'What looks like a kind of sloppy greenish-black to us "'may, in fact, does look a pale pink to them.' "'Are Kondal and Mardanael the only two nations upon Osnome?' asked Crane. "'The only civilized nations, yes. Osnome is divided into two great and almost equal continents, separated by a wide ocean which encircles the globe. One is Kondal, the other Mardanael. Each nation has several nations or tribes of savages which inhabit various waste places. "'You are the light race,' Mardanael the Dark, continued Crane. What are the servants, who seem halfway between? They are slaves. Captured savages, interrupted Dorothy. No, they are a separate race. They are a race so low in intelligence that they cannot exist except as slaves, but they can be trained to understand language and do certain kinds of work. They are harmless and mild, making excellent servants. Otherwise, they would have perished ages ago. All menial work and most of the manual labor is done by the slave race. Formerly, criminals were sterilized and reduced to unwilling slavery, but there have been no unwilling slaves in Condal for hundreds of Carcamo. Why? Are there no criminals any more? No. With the invention of the thought recorder, an absolutely fair trial was assured, and the guilty were all convicted. They could not reproduce themselves, and, as a natural result, crime died out. That is, he added hastily, what we regard as crime. Dueling, for instance, is a crime upon earth. Here it is a regular custom. In Condal, duels are rather rare, and they are held only when honor is involved. But here, in Mardanael, they are an everyday affair, as you saw when you landed. "'What makes the difference?' asked Dorothy, curiously. "'As you know, with us every man is a soldier. In Condal, we train our youth in courage, valor, and high honor. In Mardanael, they train them in savage bloodthirstiness alone. Each nation fixed its policy in bygone ages to produce the type of soldier it thought most efficient.' I notice that everyone here wears those heavy collars, said Margaret. What are they for? They are identification marks. When a child is nearly grown, a collar bearing his name and the device of his house is cast about his neck. This collar is made of arnak, a synthetic metal which, once formed, cannot be altered by any usual means. It cannot be scratched, cut, bent, broken, or worked in any way except at such a high temperature that death would result if such heat were applied to the collar. 
Once the arnak collar is cast about a person's neck, he is identified for life, and any adult Osnomian not wearing a collar is put to death. That must be interesting metal, remarked Crane. Is your belt a similar mark? The belt is an idea of my own, and Dunark smiled broadly. It looks like opaque arnak, but it isn't. It is merely a pouch in which I carry anything I am particularly interested in. Even now Boone thought it was arnak, so he didn't trouble to try to open it. If he had opened it and taken my tools and instruments, I couldn't have built the educator. Is that transparent armor arnak? Yes, the only difference being that nothing is added to the matrix to color or make opaque the finished metal. It is in the preparation of this metal that salt is indispensable. It acts only as a catalyst, being recovered afterward. But neither nation has ever had enough salt to make all the armor they want. Aren't those monsters, Carlono, I think you call them, covered by the same thing? And what are those animals, anyway? Dorothy asked. Yes, they are armored with arnak, and it is thought that the beasts grow it, the same as fishes grow scales. The Carlono are the most frightful scourge of Osnome. Very little is known of them, though every scientist has theorized upon them since time immemorial. It is very seldom that one is ever killed, as they easily outfly our swiftest battleships and only fight when they can be victorious. To kill one requires a succession of the heaviest high-explosive shells in the same spot, a joint in the armor. And after the armor is once penetrated, the animal is blown into such small fragments that reconstruction is impossible. From such remains, it has been variously described as a bird, a beast, a fish, a vegetable, sexual, asexual, and hermaphroditic. Its habitat is unknown, it being variously supposed to live high in the air, deep in the ocean, buried in the swamps. Another theory is that they live upon one of our satellites, which encounters our belt of atmosphere, every Karkam. Nothing is certainly known about the monsters except their terrible destructiveness and their insatiable appetites. One of them will devour five or six airships at one time, absorbing the crews and devouring the cargo and all of the vessel except the very hardest of the metal parts. "'Do they usually go in groups?' asked Crane. If they do, I should think that a fleet of warships would be necessary for every party. No, they are almost always found alone. Only very rarely are two found together. This is the first time in history that more than two have ever been seen together. Two battleships can always defeat one Carlon, so they are never attacked. With four battleships, Nalboon considered his expedition perfectly safe, especially as they are now rare. The navies hunted down and killed what was supposed to be the last of them upon Osnome more than a carcam ago, and none have been seen since, until we were attacked. The gong over the door sounded, and the Condoleans leaped to their positions back of the earthly visitors. The Codifix went to the door. Nalbun brushed him aside and entered, escorted by a full company of heavily armed soldiery. A scowl of anger was upon his face, and he was plainly in an ugly mood. 
Stop, Nalboon of Mardanael, thundered Seaton in the Mardalian tongue and with the full power of his mighty voice. Dare you invade my privacy unannounced and without invitation? The escort shrank back, but the Domax stood his ground, although he was plainly taken aback. With an apparent effort, he smoothed his face into lines of cordiality. I merely came to inquire why my guards are slain and my palace destroyed by my honored guest. As for slaying your guards, they sought to invade my privacy. I warned them away, but one of them was foolish enough to try to kill me. Then the others attempted to raise their childish rifles against me, and I was obliged to destroy them. As for the wall, it happened to be in the way of the thought waves I hurled against your guards. Consequently, it was demolished. An honored guest? Bah! Are honored guests to be put to the indignity of being touched by the filthy hands of a mere ladex? You do not object to the touch of slaves, with a wave of his hand toward the Condoleans? That is what slaves are for, coldly. Is a domac to wait upon himself in the court of Martindale? But to return to the issue, were I an honored guest, this would never have happened. No, now, Boone, that when you attempt to treat a visiting domac of my race as a low-born captive, you must be prepared to suffer the consequences of your rashness. May I ask how you, so recently ignorant, know our language? You question me? That is bold. Know that I, the boss of the road, show ignorance or knowledge when and where I please. You may go. End of chapter 14"'The Escape from Mardonale. "'That was a wonderful bluff, Dick,' exclaimed the Kofedix in English, "'as soon as now Boone and his guards had disappeared. "'That was exactly the tone to take with him, too. "'You've sure got him guessing.' "'It seemed to get him all right, "'but I'm wondering how long it'll hold him. "'I think we'd better make a dash for the Skylark right now, "'before he has time to think it over, don't you?' That is undoubtedly the best way, Dunark replied, lapsing into his own tongue. Now Boone is plainly in awe of you now, but if I understand him at all, he is more than ever determined to seize your vessel, and every Darkham's delay is dangerous. The earth people quickly secured the few personal belongings they had brought with them. Stepping out into the hall and waving away the guards, Seaton motioned Dunark to lead the way. The other captives fell in behind, as they had done before, and the party walked boldly toward the door of the palace. The guards offered no opposition, but stood at attention and saluted as they passed. As they approached the entrance, however, Seaton saw the major-domo hurrying away and surmised that he was carrying the news to Nalboon. Outside the door, walking directly toward the landing dock, Dunark spoke in a low voice to Seaton without turning. Nalboon knows by this time that we are making our escape, and it will be war to the death from here to the Skylark. I do not think there will be any pursuit from the palace, but he has warned the officers in charge of the dock, and they will try to kill us as soon as we step out of the elevator, perhaps sooner. Nalboon intended to wait, but we have forced his hand, and the dock is undoubtedly swarming with soldiers now. Shoot first and oftenest. Shoot first and think afterward. 
show no mercy, as you will receive none. Remember that that quality you call mercy does not exist upon Osnome. Rounding a great metal statue about fifty feet from the base of the towering dock, they saw that the door leading into one of the elevators was wide open, and that two guards stood just inside it. As they caught sight of the approaching party, the guards raised their rifles. But quick as they were, Seaton was quicker. At the first sight of the open door, he had made two quick steps and had hurled himself across the intervening forty feet in a long football plunge. Before the two guards could straighten, he crashed into them, his great momentum hurling them across the elevator cage and crushing them into unconsciousness against its metal wall. "'Good work,' said Dunark, as he preceded the others into the elevator, and, after receiving Seaton's permission, distributed the weapons of the two guards among the men of his party. "'Now we can surprise those upon the roof. That was why you didn't shoot?' "'Yes, I was afraid to risk a shot. It would give the whole thing away,' Seaton replied, as he threw the unconscious guards out into the grounds and closed the massive door. "'Aren't you going to kill them?' asked Sitar, amazement in every feature and a puzzled expression in her splendid eyes. A murmur arose from the other Condoleans, which was quickly silenced by the Kofedix. "'It is dishonorable for a soldier of earth to kill a helpless prisoner,' he said briefly. "'We could not understand it, but we must not attempt to sway him in any point of honor.' Dunark stepped to the controls, and the elevator shot upward stopping at a landing several stories below the top of the dock. He took a peculiar device from his belt and fitted it over the muzzle of his strange pistol. "'We will get out here,' he instructed the others, "'and go up the rest of the way by a little-used flight of stairs. We will probably encounter some few guards, but I can dispose of them without raising an alarm. You will all stay behind me, please.' Seaton remonstrated, and Dunark went on. No, Seaton, you have done your share and more. I am upon familiar ground now, and can do the work alone better than if you were to help me. I will call upon you, however, before we reach the dock. The Kofedex led the way, his pistol resting lightly against his hip, and at the first turn of the corridor they came full upon four guards. The pistol did not move from its place at the side of the leader, but there were four subdued clicks, and the four guards dropped dead, with bullets through their brains. "'Satan, that is some silencer,' whispered Duquesne. "'I didn't suppose a silencer could work that fast.' "'They don't use powder,' Satan replied absently, all his faculties directed toward the next corner. "'The bullets are propelled by an electric charge.' In the same manner, Dunark disposed of several more guards before the last stairway was reached. Seaton, he whispered in English, now is the time we need your rapid pistol work and your high explosive shells. There must be hundreds of soldiers on the other side of that door, armed with machine cannon, shooting high explosive shells at the rate of a thousand per minute. Our chance is this. Their guns are probably trained upon the elevators and main stairways since this passage is unused and none of us would be expected to know of it. Most of them don't know of it themselves. It will take them a second or two to bring their guns to bear upon us. We must do all the damage we can 
Kill them all, if possible, in that second or two. If Crane will lend me a pistol, we will make the rush together. I've a better scheme than that, interrupted Duquesne. Next to you, Seaton, I am the fastest man with a gun here. Also, like you, I can use both hands at once. Give me a couple clips of those special cartridges, and you and I will blow that bunch into the air before they know we are here. It was decided that the two pistol experts should take the lead, closely followed by Crane and Dunark. The weapons were loaded to capacity and put in readiness for instant use. Let's go, bunch, said Seaton. The quicker we start, the quicker we'll get back. Get ready to run out there, all the rest of you, as soon as the battle's over. Ready? On your marks? Get set? Go! He kicked the door open, and there was a stuttering crash as four automatic pistols simultaneously burst into practically continuous flame, a crash obliterated by an overwhelming concussion of sound as the explosive shells sweeping the entire roof with a rapidly opening fan of death struck their marks and exploded. Well, it was for the little group of wanderers that the two men in the door were past masters in the art of handling their weapons. Well, it was that they had in their tiny pistol bullets the explosive force of hundreds of giant shells. For rank upon rank of soldiery were massed upon the roof, rapid-fire cannon, terrible engines of destruction were pointing toward the elevators and toward the main stairways and approaches. But so rapid and fierce was the attack that even those trained gunners had no time to point their guns. The battle lasted little more than a second, being over before either Crane or Dunnock could fire a shot, and silence again reigned even while broken and shattered remnants of the guns and fragments of the metal and stone of the dock were still falling to the ground through a fine mist of what had once been men. Assured by a rapid glance that not a single Mardanalian remained upon the dock, Seaton turned back to the others. Make it snappy, Bunch. This is going to be a mighty unhealthy spot for us in a few minutes. Dorothy threw her arms around his neck in relief. With one arm about her, he hastily led the way across the dock toward the Skylark, choosing the path with care because of the yawing holes blown into the structure by the terrific force of the explosions. The Skylark was still in place, held immovable by the attractor. But what a sight she was! Her crystal windows were shattered, her mighty plates of four-foot Norwegian armor were bent and cracked and twisted, two of her doors warped and battered hung awry from their broken hinges. No shell had struck her. All this damage had been done by flying fragments of the guns and of the dock itself, and Seaton and Crane, who had developed the new explosive, stood aghast at its awful power. They hastily climbed into the vessel, and Seaton assured himself that the controls were uninjured. I hear battleships, Dunark said. Is it permitted that I operate one of your machine guns? Go as far as you like, responded Seaton, as he placed the women beneath the copper bar, the safest place in the vessel, and leaped to the instrument board. Before he had reached it, and while Duquesne, Crane, and Dunark were hastening to the guns, the whine of giant helicopter screws was plainly heard. A ranging shell from the first warship sighted a little low 
exploded against the side of the dock beneath them. He reached the levers just as the second shell screamed through the air, a bear four feet above them. As he shot the Skylark into the air under five notches of power, a steady stream of huge bombs poured through the spot where, an instant before, the vessel had been. Crane and Duquesne aimed several shots at the battleships, which were approaching from all sides, but the range was so extreme that no damage was done. They heard the continuous chattering of the machine gun operated by the Kofedix, however, and turned toward him. He was shooting not at the warships, but at the city rapidly growing smaller beneath them, moving the barrel of the rifle in a tiny spiral, spraying the entire city with death and destruction. As they looked, the first of the shells reached the ground, just as Dunark ceased firing for lack of ammunition. They saw the palace disappear as if by magic, being instantly blotted out in a cloud of dust, a cloud which, with a spiral motion of dizzying rapidity, increased in size until it obscured the entire city. Having attained sufficient altitude to be safe from any possible pursuit and out of range of even the heaviest guns, Seaton stopped the vessel and went out into the main compartment to consult with the other members of the group about their next move. "'It sure does feel good to get a breath of cool air, folks,' he said, as he drew with relief a deep breath of the air, which, at that great elevation, was of an icy temperature and very thin. He glanced at the little group of condolians as he spoke, then leaped back to the instrument board with an apology on his lips. They were gasping for breath and shivering with the cold. He switched on the heating coils and dropped the Skylark rapidly in a long descent toward the ocean. "'If that is the temperature you enjoy, I understand at last why you wear clothes,' said the Kofedix, as soon as he could talk. "'Do not your planes fly up into the regions of low temperature?' asked Crane. "'Only occasionally, and all high-flying vessels are enclosed and heated to our normal temperature. We have heavy wraps, but we dislike to wear them so intensely that we never subject ourselves to any cold.' Well, there's no accounting for tastes, returned Seaton, but I can't hand your climate a thing. It's hotter even than Washington in August, and that, as the poet feelingly remarked, is going some. But there's no reason for sitting here in the dark, he continued, as he switched on the powerful daylight lamps which lighted the vessel with the nearest approach to sunlight possible to produce. As soon as the lights were on, Dorothy looked intently at the strange women. "'Now we can see what color they really are,' she exclaimed to her lover in a low voice. "'Why, they aren't so very different from what they were before, except that the colors are much softer and more pleasing. They really are beautiful, in spite of being green. Don't you think so, Dick?' "'They are a handsome bunch, all right,' he agreed, and they were. Their skins were a light, soft green, tanned to an olive shade by their many fervent suns. Their teeth were a brilliant and shining grass-green. Their eyes and their long, thick hair were a glossy black. The Condoleans looked at the earthly visitors and at each other, and the women uttered exclamations of horror. "'What a frightful light!' exclaimed Sitar. "'Please shut it off. 
I would rather be in total darkness than look like this. What's the matter, Sitar? asked the puzzled Dorothy as Seaton turned off the lights. You look perfectly stunning in this light. They see things differently than we do, explained Seaton. Their optic nerves react differently than ours do. While we look all right to them, and they look all right to us, in both kinds of light, they look just as different to themselves under our daylight lamps as we do to ourselves in their green light. Is that explanation clear? It's clear enough as far as it goes, but what do they look like to themselves? That's too deep for me. I can't explain it any better than you can. Take the Osnomian color MLAP, for instance. Can you describe it? It's a kind of greenish-orange, but it seems as though it ought not to look like that color either. That's it, exactly. From the knowledge you received from the educator, it should be a brilliant purple. That is due to the difference in the optic nerves, which explains why we see things so differently from the way the Osnomians do. Perhaps they can describe the way they look to each other in our white light. Can you, Sitar? asked Dorothy. One word describes it. Horrible, replied the Condalean princess, and her husband added. The colors are distorted and unrecognizable, just as your colors are to your eyes in our light. Well, now that the color question is answered, let's get going. I pretty nearly asked you the way, Dunark. Forgot that I know it as well as you do. The Skylark set off at as high an altitude as the Osnomians could stand. As they neared the ocean, several great Mardalean battleships, warned of the escape, sought to intercept them. But the Skylark hopped over them easily, out of range of their heaviest guns, and flew onward at such speed that pursuit was not even attempted. The ocean was quickly crossed. Soon the space car came to rest over a great city, and Seaton pointed out the palace, which, with its landing dock nearby, was very similar to that of Nalboon, in the capital city of Mardanael. Crane drew Seaton to one side. Do you think it's safe to trust these Condaleans any more than it was the others? How would it be to stay in the Lark instead of going into the palace? Yes, Mart, this bunch can be trusted. Dunark has a lot of queer ideas, but he's square as a die. He's our friend, and will get us the copper. We have no choice now, anyway. Look at the bar. We haven't an ounce of copper left. We're down to the plating and spots. Besides, we couldn't go anywhere if we had a ton of copper, because the old bus is a wreck. She won't hold air. You could throw a cat out through the shell in any direction. She'll have to have a lot of work done on her before we can think of leaving. As to staying in her, that wouldn't help us a bit. Steel is as soft as wood to these folks. Their shells would go through her as though she were made of mush. They are made of metal that is harder than diamond and tougher than rubber, and when they strike, they bore in like drill bits. If they are out to get us, they'll do it anyway, whether we're here or there, so we may as well be guests. But there's no danger, Mart. You know I swapped brains with him, and I know him as well as I know myself. He's a good, square man, one of our kind of folks. Convinced, Crane nodded his head, and the Skylark dropped toward the dock. 
while they were still high in the air, Dunark took an instrument from his belt and rapidly manipulated a small lever. The others felt the air vibrate, a peculiar pulsating wave, which, to the surprise of the earthly visitors, they could read without difficulty. It was a message from the Kofidiks to the entire city, telling of the escape of his party and giving the news that he was accompanied by two great Carfado from another world. Then the pulsations became unintelligible, and all knew that he had turned his instrument away from the general key into the individual key of some one person. "'I just let my father, the Carfidics, know that we are coming,' he explained, as the vibrations ceased. From the city beneath them hundreds of great guns roared forth a welcome. Banners and streamers hung from every possible point, and the air became tinted and perfumed with a bewildering variety of colors and scents and quivered with the rush of messages of welcome. The Skylark was soon surrounded by a majestic fleet of giant warships who escorted her with impressive ceremony to the landing dock, while around them flitted great numbers of other aircraft. The tiny one-man helicopters darted hither and thither, apparently always in imminent danger of colliding with some of their larger neighbors, but always escaping as though by a miracle. Beautiful pleasure planes soared and dipped and wheeled like giant gulls, and, cleaving their stately way through the numberless lesser craft, immense multiplane passenger liners, partially supported by helicopter screws, turned aside from their scheduled courses to pay homage to the Kofidex of Kondal. As the Skylark approached the top of the dock, all the escorting vessels dropped away, and Crane saw that instead of the brilliant assemblage he had expected to see upon the landing place, there was only a small group of persons, as completely unadorned as were those in the car. In answer to his look of surprise, the Kofidex said with deep feeling, my father, my mother, and the rest of the family. They know that we, as escaped captives, would be without harness or trappings, and are meeting us in the same state. Seaton brought the vessel to dock near the little group, and the earthly visitors remained inside their vessel while the rulers of Condal welcomed the sons and daughters they had given up for dead. After the affecting reunion, which was very similar to an earthly one under similar circumstances, the Kofidex led his father up to the Skylark, and his guests stepped down upon the dock. Friends, Dunark began, I have told you of my father, Roban, the Kofidex of Kondal. Father, it is a great honor to present to you those who rescued us from Mardanael. Seton, Kofidex of Knowledge. Crane, Kofidex of Wealth. Miss Veneman, Miss Spencer, Carfidix Duquesne. Waving his hands toward him is a lesser Carfidix of knowledge, captive to the others. The Carfidix Dunarks exaggerates our service, deprecated Seaton, and doesn't mention the fact that he saved all our lives. But for him, we all should have been killed. The Carfidix, disregarding Seaton's remark, acknowledged the indebtedness of Condal in heartfelt accents before he led them back to the other party and made the introductions. As all walked towards the elevators, the emperor turned to his son with a puzzled expression. 
I know from your message, Dunark, that our guests are from a distant solar system, and I can understand your accident with the educator. But I cannot understand the titles of these men. Knowledge and wealth are not ruled over. Are you sure that you have translated their titles correctly? As correctly as I can, we have no words in our language to express the meaning. Their government is a most peculiar one, the rulers all being chosen by the people of the whole nation. Extraordinary, interjected the old man. How then can anything be accomplished? I do not understand the thing myself. It is so utterly unheard of. But they have no royalty, as we understand the term. In America, their country, every man is equal. That is, he hastened to correct himself, they are not all equal either, as they have two classes which would rank with royalty. Those who have attained great heights of knowledge, and those who have amassed great wealth. This explanation is entirely inadequate and does not give the right idea of their positions, but it is as close as I can come to the truth in our language. I am surprised that you should be carrying a prisoner with you, Carfido, said Roban, addressing Seaton and Crane. You will, of course, be at perfect liberty to put him to death in any way that pleases you just as though you were in your own kingdom. But perchance you are saving him, so that his death will crown your homecoming? The Kofedix spoke in answer, while Seaton, usually so quick to speak, was groping for words. No, father, he is not to be put to death. That is another peculiar custom of the earthmen. They consider it dishonorable to harm a captive, or even an unarmed enemy. For that reason, we must treat the Carfedex Duquesne with every courtesy to his rank, but at the same time he is to be allowed to do only such things as may be permitted by Seton and Crane. Yet they do not seem to be a weak race, mused the older man. They are a mighty race, far advanced in evolution, replied his son. It is not weakness, but a peculiar moral code. We have many things to learn from them, but few to give them in return. Their visit will mean much to Condal. During this conversation, they had descended to the ground and had reached the palace. After traversing grounds even more sumptuous and splendid than those surrounding the palace of Nalboon. Inside the palace walls, the Kofedix himself led the guests to their rooms, accompanied by the major domo and an escort of guards. He explained to them that the rooms were all intercommunicating, each having a completely equipped bathroom. Complete except for cold water, you mean, said Seaton with a smile. There is cold water, rejoined the other, leading him into the bathroom and releasing a ten-inch stream of lukewarm water into the small swimming pool, built of polished metal, which forms part of ever Condelian bathroom. But I am forgetting that you like extreme cold. We will install refrigerating machines at once. Don't do it. Thanks, just the same. We won't be here long enough to make it worthwhile. Dunark, smiling, replied that he would make his guests as comfortable as he could, and after informing them that in one calm he would return and escort them into Coprat, took his leave. Scarcely had the guests freshened themselves when he was back, but he was no longer the Dunark they had known. He now wore a metal and leather harness, which was one blaze of precious gems, 
and a leather belt hung with jeweled weapons replaced the familiar hollow girdle of metal. His right arm, between the wrist and the elbow, was almost covered by six bracelets of a transparent metal, deep cobalt blue in color, each set with an incredibly brilliant stone of the same shade. On his left wrist, he wore an osnomian chronometer. This was an instrument resembling the odometer of an automobile, whose numerous revolving segments revealed a large and constantly increasing number, the date and time of the Asnomian day, expressed in a decimal number of the Carcamo of Condolean history. Greetings, O guests from Earth. I feel more like myself now that I am again in my trappings and have my weapons at my side. Will you accompany me to Coprat, or are you not hungry? As he attached the peculiar timepieces to the wrists of the guests, with bracelets of the deep blue metal. We accept with thanks, replied Dorothy promptly. We are starving to death, as usual. As they walked toward the dining hall, Dunark noticed that Dorothy's eyes strayed towards his bracelets, and he answered her unasked question. These are our wedding rings. Man and wife exchange bracelets as part of the ceremony. Then you can tell whether a man is married or not, and how many wives he has, simply by looking at his arm. We should have something like that on earth, Dick. Then married men wouldn't find it so easy to pose as bachelors. Roban met them at the door of the great dining hall. He was also in full Penelope, and Dorothy counted ten of the heavy bracelets upon his right arm as he led them to places near his own. The room was a replica of the other Osnomian dining hall they had seen, and the women were decorated with the same barbaric splendor of scintillating gems. After the meal, which was a happy one, taking the nature of a celebration in honor of the return of the captives, Duquesne went directly to his room, while the others spent the time until the zero hour in strolling about the splendid grounds, always escorted by many guards. Returning to the room occupied by the two girls, the couples separated, each girl accompanying her lover to the door of his room. Margaret was ill at ease, as though trying hard to appear completely self-possessed. "'What is the matter, sweetheart, Peggy?' asked Crane, solicitously. "'I didn't know that you,' she broke off, and continued with a rush. "'What did the Kofedex mean just now, when he called you Carfedex of Wealth?' "'Well, you see, I happen to have some money,' he began. "'Then you are the great M. Reynolds Crane?' she interrupted in consternation. "'Leave off the grate,' he said. Then, noting her expression, he took her in his arms and laughed slightly. "'Is that all that was bothering you? What does a little money amount to between you and me?' "'Nothing, but I'm awfully glad that I didn't know it before,' she replied, as she returned his caress with fervor. "'That is, it means nothing, if you are perfectly sure I'm not.' Crane, the imperturbable, broke a lifelong rule and interrupted her. "'Do not say that, dear. You know as well as I do that between you and me there never have been, are not now, and never shall be, any doubts or any questions.' "'If I could have a real cold bath now, I'd feel fine,' remarked Seaton, standing in his own door with Dorothy by his side. "'I'm no blooming Englishman, 
but in weather as hot as this, I sure would like to dive into a good cold tank. How do you feel after all this excitement, Dottie? Up to standard? I'm scared purple, she replied, nestling against him, or at least, if not exactly scared, I'm apprehensive and nervous. I always thought I had good nerves, but everything here is so horrible and unreal that I can't help but feel it. When I'm with you, I really enjoy the experience, but when I'm alone or with Peggy, especially in the sleeping period, which is so awfully long, and when it seems that something terrible is going to happen every minute, my mind goes off in spite of me into thoughts of what may happen. Why, last night, Peggy and I just huddled up to each other in a ghastly yellow funk, dreading we knew not what, the two of us slept hardly at all. I'm sorry, little girl, replied Seaton, embracing her tenderly, sorrier than I can say. I know that your nerves are all right, but you haven't roughed it enough or lived in strange environments enough to be able to feel at home. The reason you feel safer with me is that I feel perfectly at home here myself. Not that your nerves are going to pieces or anything like that. It won't be long, though, sweetheart. As soon as we get the chariot fixed, we'll beat it back to earth so fast it'll make your head spin. Yes, I think that's the reason, lover. I hope you won't think I'm a clinging vine, but I can't help being afraid of something here every time I'm away from you. You're so self-reliant, so perfectly at ease here, that it makes me feel the same way. I am perfectly at ease. There's nothing to be afraid of. I've been in hundreds of worse places, right on earth. I sure wish I could be with you all the time, sweetheart girl. Only you can understand just how much I wish it. But, as I said before, it won't be long until we can be together all the time. Dorothy pushed him into his room, followed him within it, closed the door, and put both hands on his arms. Dick, sweetheart, she whispered, while a hot blush suffused her face, you're not as dumb as I thought you were, you're dumber. But if you simply won't say it, I will. Don't you know that a marriage that is legal where it is performed is legal anywhere, and that no law says that the marriage must be performed upon the earth? He pressed her to his heart in a mighty embrace, and his low voice showed in every vibration the depth of the feeling he held for the beautiful woman in his arms as he replied, I never thought of that, sweetheart. I wouldn't have dared mentioned it if I had. You're so far away from your family and your friends that it would seem... It wouldn't seem anything of the kind, she broke in earnestly. Don't you see, you big, dense, wonderful man, that it is the only thing to do. We need each other, or at least I need you so much now. Say each other, it's right, declared her lover with fervor. It's foolish to wait. Mother would like to have seen me married, of course, but there will be great advantages even on that side. A grand wedding of the kind we would simply have to have in Washington doesn't appeal to me any more than it does to you, and it would bore you to extinction. Dad would hate it, too. It's better all around to be married here. Seaton, who had been trying to speak, silenced her. I'm convinced, Dottie, have been ever since the first word. If you can see it that way, I'm so glad that I can't express it. I've been scared stiff every time I thought of our wedding. I'll speak to the Carfedics the first thing in the morning, 
and will be married tomorrow, or rather today, since it is past the zero calm, as he glanced at the chronometer upon his wrist, which, driven by wireless impulses from the master clock in the National Observatory, was clicking off the Darkamo with an almost inaudible purr of its smoothly revolving segments. How would it be to wake him up and have it done now? Oh, Dick, be reasonable. That would never do. Tomorrow will be most awfully sudden as it is. And, Dick, please speak to Martin, will you? Peggy's even more scared than I am, and Martin, the dear old stupid, is even less likely to suggest such a thing as this kind of a wedding than you are. Peggy's afraid to suggest it to him. Woman, he said in mock sternness, is this a put-up job? It certainly is. Did you think I had nerve enough to do it without help? Seaton turned and opened the door. Mart, bring Peggy over here, he called, as he led Dorothy back into the girl's room. Heavens, Dick, be careful. You'll spoil the whole thing. No, I won't. Leave it to me. I bashfully admit that I'm a regular bearcat at this diplomatic stuff. Watch my smoke. Folks, he said, when the four were together, Dottie and I have been talking things over, and we've decided that today's the best possible date for a wedding. Dottie's afraid of these long daylight nights, and I admit that I'd sleep a lot sounder if I knew where she was all the time instead of only part of it. She says she's willing, provided you folks see it the same way, and make it a double. How about it? Margaret blushed furiously, and Crane's lean, handsome face assumed a darker color as he replied. A marriage here would, of course, be legal anywhere, provided we have a certificate, and could be married again upon our return if we think it desirable. It might look as though we were taking an unfair advantage of the girl's dick, but considering all the circumstances, I think it would be the best thing for everyone concerned. He saw the supreme joy in Margaret's eyes, and his own assumed a new light as he drew her into the hollow of his arm. Peggy has known me only a short time, but nothing else in the world is as certain as our love. It is the bride's privilege to set the date, so I will only say that it cannot be too soon for me. The sooner the better, said Margaret with a blush that would have been divine in any earthly light. Did you say today, Dick? I'll see the Carfedix as soon as he gets up, he answered, and walked with Dorothy to his door. I'm just too supremely happy for words, Dorothy whispered in Seaton's ear as he bade her good night. I won't be able to sleep or anything. End of chapter 15